Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you live your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is www.thementalhealthgym.com. You can visit the Mental Health Gym and learn lots of information about positive psychology, goal-achieving psychology, and how to be the best version of yourself moving forward at any stage of your life. As you know, our podcasts are devoted to bringing interesting and informative guests to the show who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and are in a position to present different perspectives to help you lead your own lives with enthusiasm. I have to admit that every once in a while, in vetting a guest, I find that we're not a good fit, that they're more interested in focusing on problems and getting from some low place to neutral, rather than focusing on thriving, flourishing, and being the best version of yourself that you can be. That is not going to be a problem today, because our guest, Benjamin Emmert Aronson, Ph.D., shares the same side of the positive psychology spectrum as I do. His life is devoted to helping people maximize their functioning from a physical and mental standpoint. Dr. Aronson is the founder and director of operations of Open Source Wellness. He is also an award-winning psychologist who co-founded Open Source Wellness, which is a behavioral pharmacy that helps people do the actual behaviors that produce health, exercise, good food, stress reduction, and social support. So as you can tell, he's a man after my own heart. And participants in his program are seeing striking improvements in health, including averaging 21-point decreases in systolic blood pressure, 57% decreases in depression severity, and something I got to ask him about, because I don't know how that gets figured, but a 77% decrease in emergency room utilization. During my long life, I've had to visit an emergency room very seldom, but I don't ever recall it being a particularly fun experience. And anything that could reduce the need to do that, you know, certainly uh, catches my eye, and I'm going to want to learn more about it. So anyway, I've talked long enough. Ben, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's great to have you with us. Ron, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started because I know you got a lot to say and a lot of help to provide. First thing is I was struck by the term behavioral pharmacy, Not sure that I've heard many practices that use that term, if any, and I kind of have a feeling this isn't a place where you take a script from a doctor and go get some drugs. Can you tell us what's the meaning behind the term and, and just in general, what is open source wellness? Absolutely. Yeah, you won't find many people talking about a behavioral pharmacy. As near as I can tell, we've coined the term. But my co-founder and I really saw, we worked in a number of different healthcare settings, 
including safety net hospitals, low-income hospitals, that kind of thing. What we saw over and over was that doctors would provide their patients with what we came to think of as behavioral prescriptions. So, you know, we know in the medical field, we know that our behaviors have a huge impact on our overall health, you know, what we eat, how we move, how we handle stress. Because of that, the doctors would say things like, you got to eat better, you got to exercise more, you got to reduce your stress. The problem with these behavioral prescriptions is that there was no behavioral pharmacy to accompany them. So when the doctors would say, you need insulin or you need antidepressants, they would say, you know, go to the CVS on any corner. It'll be dosed specifically for you. There will be a pharmacist who can answer any questions for you. Your insurance will pay for it. But when our patients were told you need to eat better, exercise more, reduce your stress, there was no equivalent behavioral pharmacy. There was no place they could go to actually do these behaviors and have them dosed for the patient, to have someone who could answer questions that they had. And we found that this was particularly problematic for our low-income patients, that if folks had some means, had some privilege, they were maybe able to hire a health coach, they might be able to join a gym, join yoga classes, something like that, and get the structure and support that they needed. But if they didn't have access to that, then they were going back to their you know, two part-time jobs, trying to make ends meet, and they didn't have the same structure and accessibility available to them. Consequently, they weren't able to make these changes, and we saw this real bifurcation in health outcomes, where our patients with privilege were able to make behavioral changes, they were able to improve their health, stave off these chronic diseases, diabetes, heart disease, depression. And our folks without that tended to, because of these kind of societal structural issues, tended to be less able to make those same changes, didn't have access to the structure and support that was necessary. And so their diseases would worsen. And as you mentioned in the intro, would end up in the emergency room instead of in primary care. Looking at this kind of overarching problem, we said we need the equivalent of a pharmacy for these behaviors so that we can really bring the, the joy and the fun and the community aspect of health to everyone, not just those who have the means to access it. What services do you provide? A, a physician will <laughs> say, you know, you should exercise more or eat better. Mm -hmm. What do you do that they can't do on their own? Yeah, what's that actually look like? First of all, everything is group-based. We say community is medicine. We have a really strong belief that it's in coming together as a community that these behaviors that may feel like chores in other realms become fun, they become rewarding, they become accessible. And so what we do is we have patients who are referred to us by their doctors. They join a four-month cohort, and they come every week to a two-hour group. Now, obviously, with coronavirus, this group has changed a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about those changes as we go. Well, when they come to this group, we do about 20 minutes of fun, kind of dance-based movement, playful, interactive. We do a little bit of mindfulness meditation to reduce stress. 
we have some kind of interactive lesson that is built around health and well-being. So it might be something like how to get more movement in your daily life or eating healthy on a budget or setting boundaries in relationships, kind of anything that helps improve our health and well-being. In the in-person groups, after that, everyone gets together at a small group at a table and eats a meal together along with a health coach who's working with that small group of half a dozen or so participants. And so it's at these tables that participants really build those relationships together, get to talk both with their health coach as well as with other participants who are going through some of the same struggles that they are and able to really learn from one another's successes and wins. It's so needed. I'm so, <laughs> it is so, so good needed. to hear about it. But I guess one of the questions that occurs to me, you talk about this being particularly important for low-income people, how do people access it financially or insurance-wise? The notion of, I don't know how many insurance plans paid to eat a meal together or stuff like that. I'm wondering, you know, if somebody's listening in and say, that fits, but how, how am I going to afford it? Sure. Thus far, insurance companies aren't paying for it, and we're working on that. I'll save you the, the boring details of the, I don't know, policy side that we're doing, the administrative side that we're doing. But we are working with both healthcare centers as well as insurance companies to show the outcomes of this work and to say, you know, you'll save money paying for this work. It really is a good financial investment. Prevention far, is always a harder, harder sell. Right? Yeah, it is. As far as how participants afford it, we partner directly with healthcare clinics so that when participants join our groups through their clinic, it's actually free to them. And then we contract directly with the healthcare clinic. The clinic then is able, because of the group medical visit aspect of this, and again, I'm I'll try not to go too far into the weeds, but they're able to double the number of patients that they bill for. And so the clinic makes more money seeing the extra patients than they spend contracting with us. So it really is this incredible win-win-win setup where the clinic, these low-income clinics struggling to keep their doors open are making more money. The patients are improving their health. Providers are having better experiences because it's a group medical visit instead of a series of one-on-one -on -one medical visits. And so it's just a win all around here. Before coronavirus, was everything done physically at your place or did you have an online presence before? Before coronavirus, everything was in person. We had actually been asked for years when we were going to move this virtual. We're based out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so everyone wanted to know when the app was coming out. And for us, we were saying, no, it's really important that people connect person to person in real life. While we still believe that, obviously, coronavirus has changed everything for all of us. And so now our groups have all shifted virtual where we are using Zoom to do these same groups, but instead of doing them in person, we do them virtually. So we still start out with movement. We do a little mindfulness. We still have people split into break 
breakout groups where they're able to meet with their health coach and continue the relationships with their other group mates. The biggest difference is that we mostly are not able to do a meal together. That said, we have connected with a number of low-income housing communities where we not only bring all of this work to the residents, but then we also have catered meals come in. And so the residents are still able to share that meal. Wow, great. And are you finding that people are motivated to do it online, that they do follow through and so on? Yeah. As I imagine many of your listeners are experiencing, this is a time of a great deal of isolation and disconnection for a lot of people. And so our participants have been really grateful to have this ongoing connection and to have a chance to reconnect. It's not in person, but it's a whole lot better than what we had before. For some of our folks, it's been a bit of a lifeline that able to connect in this way. And I'll also say that as we saw what was going on with coronavirus, and we saw that this was something that wasn't going to be you know, a matter of days or even weeks, we said, this is not a time to kind of sit with what we've been doing. This is a time where we really need to spread this work. We need to make it available much more broadly. And we've got people all across the country who are now isolated from one another, are missing that social connection are missing the chance of interacting together. And so once we had set these virtual groups up for our current groups, we said, okay, how do we spread this? How do we make this available literally to anyone in the country? And so now we're really excited to be able to offer that, you know, because it's a virtual group, you in Philadelphia and me in San Francisco can hop on a meeting together and we can bridge some of this isolation that has otherwise developed. Sounds wonderful. But a bottom line is when I introduced you, I mentioned some of the success rates that you've had. Can you run by them more specifically? And and how do you measure it? How do you know that somebody is 77% less <laughs> likely to go to an emergency room by participating? Sure. Yep. And I'm going to offer a caveat. I'm a bit of a data geek. So if I get too deep into these numbers, you just wave at me or let me know. Okay. We'll bring it back. See me fall asleep. And, uh, <laughs> right. There you go. Louder. So it's always been really important to me to track how we're doing as an organization. And so literally from the day we opened our doors, we were giving questionnaires and measures to our participants both so that we get a sense of what we're doing well, and also so that we have a sense of where to improve. And then in addition, so that we can share that data with our participants, so that they can see their changes over time, and so that we can share that data with outside organizations, so that we can say to insurance companies, you know, look, here are the hard numbers. Here's how people's health is changing with this intervention. We can share it at medical conferences around the country and share with people the importance of doing group medical visits and of working with community-based organizations like ourselves so that doctors can do the important work of doctoring and we can do the health coaching, the social connection, the pieces that our medical professionals, our specialists just aren't trained to do. And so that's a little bit of the background on why we do the data. 
the actual mechanics of it, we just give people questionnaires. So there's well-validated measures out there for things like depression, anxiety, social isolation, also diet, exercise, connection, well-being. And so we give folks a series of measures of each of these when they first come in and then each month thereafter for the four months that they're with us. As you said, what we've seen over those four months is that people who have high blood pressure drop their blood pressure by 21 points. This is about twice what we see with antihypertensive medications. People who come in with depression see a decrease of depression of 57%. And then you had asked about emergency room visits. This comes through one of our wonderful partnerships here in the Bay Area, Alameda Health System where we're embedded right in that primary care clinic. And so we were able to look at patients' medical records and able to say, okay, of these 100 patients who came through our group, how many of them went to the emergency room? How often did they go to the emergency room? And what we saw was for that particular cohort, there was a 77% reduction of emergency room visits comparing the six months before they started the group to the six months after they finished the group. That's impressive. And you kept me awake. It was that interesting. Good, good. (laughs) I guess a coordinated question is, for much of the last four decades, I've been largely involved in working with headache patients. And one of the things in promoting the behavioral health issue of it is the fact that people aren't, while it may not be totally logical, people aren't used to thinking in some of the same terms. Say, for example, they may be used to the fact that, hey, if I take a pill, swallow it, it goes to my stomach, that's going to help my head. And they don't question that. Whereas somebody, well, if you're going to do some meditation or biofeedback or exercise, that that's going to actually help your headache. If you do yoga, that's going to help your headache. Do you find any kind of pushback against the notion that, hey, how's this going to make me better? I want a pill. We haven't seen much of that, although I suspect some of that is self-selection. That patients who just want the pill and aren't interested in changing their behaviors, well, when their doctor sends them to us, they just don't come. <laughs> And so I, you know, I think that that's fine. I think that there's a lot of different ways to health. And if where they're at right now is I just want a pill and I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to keep doing, then that's okay for them. Because there's a whole lot of folks out there who are saying, you know, I want to change my behaviors. I want to do some things differently. I know that what I do on a daily basis makes a difference. And I think the other thing that we see with that is that people just experience that very quickly. When they start coming to open source wellness, you know, they start eating a little bit differently. They connect meaningfully with other people. They see that they're not the only ones who are struggling with a particular issue. They see that there's other people like them. And all of these things, all of these bits of connection and bits of community really help people to feel better. And so then, whether they started out thinking that a change in behavior would change their health or not, they've experienced it themselves. They know that it's true. And I suspect one of the really nice developments in recent years 
is that you do get a number of physicians, not all, but, but certainly a number of them who, number one, practice, you know, good practices themselves in terms of their health, but also see that these things work and recommend them to patients. And I think for a lot of patients, physicians' recommendation is a strong motivator. And if we're getting more people who are recommending things in the behavioral health area, that's a big step along the way in in getting some behaviors changed. Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen a real shift, I think, in this area of lifestyle medicine. There's even a an organization built around it now called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is doctors, nurses, healthcare providers who are really focused on the idea that our daily behaviors change our health and that we should really focus with patients on those daily behaviors. I share your optimism here that we're kind of at the crest of a wave that's really come to the forefront. Yeah, I think there's a movement that is probably not going to stop. And I think one of the good things is as more people advance within the medical profession, I think they'll select more people like themselves. And I think that we're going to have one of these days, it's hard to think in those terms in the midst of the current crisis, but I think one of these days we're going to see a much more together health system that's oriented toward wellness rather than just, you know, focusing on disease and getting the person to neutral. Reducing sickness. On a more personal note, I'm always interested in a person's journey to being who they are. If you don't mind, can you share with us a little bit about how you got into the psychology realm and also how you wound up in the wellness area rather than the abnormal area, stuff like that? Absolutely. I'm actually a proud third-generation psychologist. My grandfather's psychology license number in the state, the whole state of New York, he was number 42. So one of the early psychologists. And I remember in college trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I think in many ways, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. But I had this sense that, you know, I had watched my dad do psychology and I kind of liked that. And I liked listening to people and talking with them. So I had the sense that psychology might be a good route for me as well. As I went through grad school, as I went through my professional career, I really saw kind of this bifurcation in what folks were able to access depending on their level of privilege, depending on their wealth. And I just saw so much around what we're now calling the social determinants of health, so much around this necessity of having wealth to get health, it just felt terrible to me. Like it felt really unfair and unjust, and I wanted to do something about that. And so that's really how I got started with open source wellness was this idea that that wealth should not be a precursor for health that we really should have a health care system that serves us all, that supports us all, that really uplifts people, particularly people who are vulnerable. That led me to the nonprofit realm, led me to co-founding Open Source Wellness. And now we're kind of expanding back out of that focus solely on underserved populations and bringing that work 
back into everyone because right now in some ways with the shelter in place with the quarantines we're all limited in what we can access around connection around community around social support yeah i think you're as aware as i am of all the research that indicates you know the really deleterious effects of loneliness and it was really exciting for me to hear about the involvement in connection as being uh social connection as being kind of one of the bases for the way that you function. Are you optimistic about how our branch of psychology is going and whether it will move to take on an even bigger part of consciousness? I am, particularly right now during this pandemic. It's so easy to be focused on the things that are going badly and that you know there's plenty of them but it also really brings to light the well i'm gonna quote a teacher here mr rogers used to say look for the helpers and i think while the pandemic has highlighted concerns in our healthcare system it's highlighted challenges in our societal system it's also really elevated the helpers. It's really elevated the ways that people are being kind to one another and reaching out to other people. Speaking personally, I've met more of my neighbors in the past two months than I had in the past two years. We're seeing just so much of people coming together and reaching out to one another and saying, you know, I'm here too. I hear you. I hear you in this hard time. I'm here for you. I think that we will come through this stronger and more connected and better for it. It's more than a slogan to say we're all in this together. And I think that Mm -hmm. sharing that with so many people, some of whom we may not have been particularly close with and so on, uh, is Mm -hmm. one of the unintended positive consequences, I guess, of the situation and again hopefully the medical part of it will will get controlled sufficiently to allow us to utilize some of those principles moving forward since we're talking about this for somebody who is listening the podcast is not in your area is kind of functioning on a day-to-day basis what suggestions do you have in terms of We know that strengthening the immune system is something we should all be doing. And, you know, there are all kinds of recommendations, both herbally and pharmacologically and supplement-wise and behavioral-wise. What are some of the things that you encourage at this point? You know, I love that you bring this up. And I love the allusion to, like, there are so many recommendations out there. It's easy to get caught in all of the the details of all the recommendations. I know I will sometimes when I want to find like the perfect whatever it is, I will travel down a rabbit hole and I'll spend hours and hours Googling this and searching that. We focus on some fairly simple recommendations. You know, I had talked through what we do in our groups. And we start out with movement, we do some stress reduction, mindfulness. We eat a healthy meal together and we make sure that the groups are built in a connected, socially supportive manner. We abbreviate that move, nourish, connect, be. And really, to me,
me, these four things are what we should all be doing every day. If we do these four things, that's going to do 80% of our health and well-being. And it doesn't have to be anything particular. You know, walking is a great exercise. I'm a bicyclist myself. I used to race bikes in college and grad school. I love going for a bike ride. Gardening, whatever it is that has has you moving, has you sweat a little bit, that's great for movement. <laughs> for for good food, there are a million different diets out there. What we usually say is less sugar, more vegetables. We could debate for hours the benefits of this diet or that diet, but I think we could all do a little better on the vegetable intake and probably stand to eat a little less sugar. <laughs> Some way of reducing stress, whether that's meditation or journaling or going for a walk again, like whatever it is for you that allows you to connect with something meaningful, I think that that is great. And again, there's a thousand different ways to do it. And then that social support, particularly right now, this is a time to be calling friends, to be poking your head over the fence from six feet away with your mask on, but saying hi to your neighbors. It's a time where these basic daily behaviors of health and well-being are the things that I think make the biggest difference. Uh, and when you think about it, if one of these types of disasters, pandemic, had occurred at any other time in our history where we didn't have an internet, where we didn't have, you know, cell phones. I mean, there are a million ways to connect with people that make it much more tolerable if we don't just stay stuck and try and figure out, well, what TV show that I wasn't <laughs> planning to watch is on tonight and stuff like that. There's a lot to be grateful for right now. Being positive and being optimistic is good for the brain. So let's mm -hmm. hope we can do that. As is often the case, time runs out before ideas run out and, and good discussion. Can't promise I'm not going to have you back. But I just want to close with a, a few interesting questions, at least interesting to me. I noticed that Open Source Wellness got the Scattergood Award. What is that, and why did you get it? The Scattergood Foundation is this wonderful foundation, actually based in Philadelphia. It was founded by Thomas Scattergood, who was a Quaker, if I remember right. And the foundation has a real focus. That actually, I think it's their motto is do good. So it's hard to argue with that. They host a Innovation in Healthcare Award, Innovation in Behavioral Health Award each year. And last year, we won that Behavioral Health Innovation Award for the work with open source wellness. And so I think, you know, as we were talking about before, we're at the leading edge of a wave of focus on behavioral health, on lifestyle medicine, on connection and community as medicine and really building a different, a true healthcare system. That explains the award and it explains why you won it because it, <laughs> obviously you've been doing some wonderful, innovative things. And I'm sure people may be interested in how they can get access to you. I guess I, it's a two-part question. If 
if they're in the San Francisco Bay Area, how do they go about it? And since you are doing stuff virtually, and I don't know if you have other products or whatever, I mean, it's hard to imagine that there aren't a whole lot of people that are interested in what you're doing and learning more about you. How, how do they get to you? Absolutely. So we are really pleased to be offering this work virtually. Similar to the mental health gym, we think of it a bit as a gym that folks can join and there is a monthly investment for joining. But if they can just go to opensourcewellness.org and there's a link at the top that says participate virtually. That'll show a video of our virtual work and lead folks through some questions and also sharing a little bit more information about open source wellness. You know, you were talking before about this idea of a focus that is either from a low point to neutral or from good to great. I had a teacher who used to talk about the importance of that good to great. And so even for folks out there who are, you know, they're going along and doing fairly well, I would say, check this out. See if it's the kind of thing that seems like it might be helpful to you going good to great. Because how much better to live our life vibrantly, to live from this place of thriving, to live enthusiastically, as you say. And then if people have specific questions, they can always reach out to me directly at ben at opensourcewellness.org. Okay, we will have that in the, in the show notes. The idea of the good to great is a really good idea to, to sum things up on. One of my questions when I deal with patients a lot is uh, what makes you so awesome or what things make you awesome and I started asking it and was surprised at how many thought it was a trick question or something that you know can I come back and tell you next week or something like that and I think people have to really start looking at you know even if they've been going through a difficult time even if their self-image has been in need of repair, that there is something better out there. There is greatness in all of us. And I really applaud you for your work in promoting it in a large, large number of people. San Francisco Bay Area is really fortunate to have you in open source wellness. And maybe we can help spread the word so the rest of the country can share in that fortune. Ben, it's been you know, a real pleasure to speak with you, to have you on the show, to have you share your wisdom and your ideas. And we'll look forward to somewhere down the road to contacting you again. And again, all the information will be in the show notes. And I know that if you contact Ben, you're going to get a lot of good advice and help. And hopefully you'll step forward and do that. So as we draw to a close, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser. The program is Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. And once again, we've had a really dynamite guest. Please visit my website, www.thementalhealthgym.com. If you haven't read Rejuvenating, the art and science of growing older with enthusiasm yet, I hope you will. And Visit us on social media where you can learn about a lot of the things that we're doing, including our upcoming course on well-being at a time of uncertainty. 
And so until next time, thank you again, Dr. Ben, and we will be following your work as you move forward with all the great things that you're doing.